0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, November 6th. Amanda Borchel-Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Laser Behrman, and military correspondent, Emmanuel Fabian. Hello to you both.
1: Hello, Shavotov. Hi, good morning.
0: Good morning and a good week to both of you. We have a lot to discuss as usual, including the diplomatic ripple effects of the recent Israeli elections, a recent exchange of fire in and out of the Gaza Strip, and a new kosher food initiative for IDF soldiers in the US. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors.
2: Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Saracheck Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Saracheck's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis so they're only compensated when they succeed.
0: And we're back, Manny. Let's start with you. Early Friday morning, the Israeli military struck a rocket factory in the Gaza Strip. Some hours after four rockets were launched at Israel from the Hamas-run Palestinian enclave, tell us more. Is this directly related to the elections at all? You think?
1: Hi. So I don't think it's related to the elections. Uh, it is related to something else. So the rockets came just a few hours after um, Israeli troops killed. Uh, an Islamic Jihad member in Jenin in the West Bank. And now this man, he was responsible, allegedly according to Israel, uh, for killing a Israeli officer earlier this year. And he was involved in several other shootings in the West Bank and was planning further uh, attacks. So he was killed and then several hours later, these rockets were launched from Gaza at southern Israel. Now, Israel believes Islamic Jihad in Gaza is responsible for it, uh, although they have not claimed uh, direct responsibility. Uh, So, in response to these rockets, one of them uh, crossed the border and was intercepted by the Iron Dome, and the other three uh, fell short, actually, in Gaza. Uh, But in response, Israel targeted a Hamas rocket manufacturing facility. They used uh, these bunker-busting bombs, 19 tons worth of munitions, to kind of blow up this underground facility uh, and destroy it. And this marked, actually, the first kind of exchange of fire between Israel and Gaza in three months since August. Uh, when Israel and the Islamic Jihad had a had a three day round of fighting. Uh, so right now, it doesn't seem like it's related to the elections. It seems closer to um, kind of this internal Islamic Jihad wanting to, to kind of avenge its member being killed in the West Bank. So we'll have to uh, look at this and uh, keep an eye on see what happens next in the West Bank and see how that affects uh, in Gaza.
0: So you say that the IDF believes that Islamic Jihad is responsible and yet it bombed a Hamas-run facility. Is it just that there's this long list of sites that are available and anytime something happens, the IDF uh, can spin its wheel and choose one?
1: Right. So in general, the Israeli policy is to hold Hamas responsible for anything that happens uh, out of Gaza. Any rocket fire, Hamas is responsible. That is, most of the time, rarely it will target directly Islamic Jihad. uh, If one islamic jihad uh, claims responsibility publicly for the attack or if um israel is directing a campaign specifically at islamic jihad like we saw in august uh, that round of fighting was specifically at islamic jihad uh it was launched at israel's initiative anyway so israel more or less kind of started the round of fighting there after all these threats came from islamic jihad Uh, and it did not target hamas at all during that round so that's the israeli policy really is if anything is launched at Israel, then it's Hamas's fault because they run the Gaza Strip. But if there's some some sort of specific uh, kind of fighting or action done by Islamic Jihad, then it will uh, target it only.
0: And since Friday, things have been relatively calm.
1: Right. So things have been calm during the IDF strike, however, um, Palestinian government in the Gaza Strip, or members of Islamic Jihad, or of Hamas, it's not quite sure, but they fired at Israeli jets uh, with these uh, large caliber bullets. During the strike, the Israeli jets were not harmed at all, but some of these bullets landed back down on earth and hit a few homes in Sderot, close to the border. So one home was slightly damaged, um, the bullet just kind of flammed through the the kitchen roof and and damaged a bit of uh, things in the kitchen, but but nothing more than that. No one was uh, seriously hurt. The army did not respond to that kind of incident.
0: Manny, thank you for that update. Laser, let's turn to you and speak about the ripple effects from the recent November first election. For those of you listeners who haven't yet listened to the final episode of our Paralyzed Nation Limited Series podcast. There you would hear us do a deep dive into the subject. But for now, let's begin with the recent statement from
3: Bahrain. The question that people are asking now is what does Benjamin Netanyahu's win mean? And what does it mean that he will in all likelihood bring the Otzma Yehudit Religious Zionism Party in with Bezella Smotrich and Itamar Bengvir? And what, what will that mean for Israel's relationships with the world? Um, I think we have a good indication of what it will mean for Israel's relationships with our Gulf allies. I did not expect it to shake up their relationship in any way. Uh, Let's not forget that these countries signed the Abram Accords when Benjamin Netanyahu was prime minister. And they probably prefer to have someone who's seen as a strong Middle Eastern leader who is not afraid to take on Iran – in the leadership position in Israel. This seems to have been confirmed by um, one of the King's top advisors who said, you know, he was basically making the point that this is a long-term alliance, that elections happen, there's no problem, it's entirely normal uh, for Bibi to come back, and this will not shake up uh, the ties in any way. They are in it for economic interests, for security interests, and other long-term interests. And I think that is a good frame for understanding countries' relationships with Israel. The, the interests are ultimately what determine policy. And there might be some grumbling, especially in the West, uh, Western Europe, the United States, about either Bibi himself and especially uh, Itamar Gvir in a ministerial role. But that doesn't, it's not going to shake up the relationship in any particular way. We heard thinly veiled warnings from uh, the State Department spokesperson, Ned Price, and from a spokeswoman for uh, the British Prime Minister, stressing the importance of Israel maintaining Western values, and, and uh, you know officials avoiding inflammatory speech, that was obviously a warning. But uh, you know ties run too deep, and and they these countries obviously have their own far right parties and far right issues to deal with, and that's something that is true across Europe as well. So it kind of underscores the fact that Israel is a normal country in terms of the Western world. And there are right-wing elements and far-right elements that voters want for different reasons, and they're going to be part of a government. And we saw this, you know, follow suit in in Italy and Sweden, and other places as well. So it, I don't think anyone who um, who is watching Israel's uh, diplomatic relationships should expect any major shakeups. A place where there might actually be, let's point at two places where Bibi himself might be an issue. Uh, Jordan, obviously one of Israel's most important relationships. Israel and Jordan share Israel's longest border, that eastern border. And Jordan's stability is a key national security uh, interest for Israel. Relationships, The relationship got quite bad under Bibi, especially at the end of his last term. Um, and uh, there's personal animosity on both sides. Uh, Bibi doesn't like... The Hashemite regime and sees them as hypocrites and you know uh, not appreciating what Israel does to secure to provide for for Jordan and um, the Jordanians see Bibi as someone who uh, tries to use them for political purposes and and uh, undermines them in Jerusalem and on the Temple Mount. But again, those relationships got better under Lapid, but in the last in recent months they also started to decline again. So it's not like the Jordanian relationship was was ever free of tension, it'll remain, security relationship will remain, probably senior officials will not be meeting each other. The other big question is the United States, obviously, among many of the Democrats don't love Netanyahu, uh, he was the one who openly challenged uh, the Obama administration in Congress over the JCPOA, and many of those same officials are back in the Biden administration. But the Biden administration has shown no desire to pick a fight with Israel. It might be a little bit more willing to criticize Israel than it was under Lapid and Bennett, but I think the deeper interests are there, and no side is served by an open fight, especially as th- at this stage. If indeed the Iran nuclear deal comes back into headlines and becomes a possibility somehow, maybe we'll see uh, some real some real you know chilliness between the relationship, but I think um, barring that I th- we will not expect any fireworks um, in the near term.
0: Lizard, were you surprised to see that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was uh, reaching out to uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas to somewhat perhaps quell his own fears over the rising government?
3: I wasn't especially surprised. Um, I think uh, we have to remember that this is somewhat in the context of U.S. frustration over the Palestinian Authority anyway in some of its uh, statements and moves uh, toward Russia. And this, there might have been a lot of warning there as well. And, and there wasn't anything particularly harsh that Lincoln said. It was a reassurance that Israel believes in two-state solution. But they can say that all the time. There's no expectation that the U.S. is going to do anything. Um, there are some diplomatic sources who have told me that they expect uh, Biden to uh, reach out to Netanyahu today. So we might be seeing that. Um, but neither side has confirmed that. Um, but it's something we should be looking for in the near future as well.
0: Okay, Laser, thank you. We'll go to short break now.
2: The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we are back. Now, Laser, staying with you, actually, the British government said on Thursday that it would not relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which is essentially backing away a, a, a pledge that was made by the very short-lived former Prime Minister Liz Truss's administration to weigh the matter. So she left office about a month ago. At the time when she said it, even, you didn't seem very convinced that it would happen. And so are you surprised with this announcement that they're backing away from even weighing the matter?
3: There is some surprise here because uh, Rishi Sunak, the new British prime minister, has always been quite a friend of Israel. And once things are in motion, it obviously is a bigger statement to to turn them back. Um, but again, I did not really expect the British to do this anytime soon. The prime minister is not as powerful, let's say, as the U.S. president And I think there's no question that the British foreign establishment is not especially uh, thrilled by this move. And what did she pledge? She pledged to look into the matter and see what can be done. Um, I think they just have bigger issues on their plate than trying to shake things up. But I will say that the British are not bound like many uh, European countries that have talked about doing this, in that they are bound in many ways to a unified European policy and don't want to get too ahead of that. So we've seen some countries open branch offices. I'm talking about Hungary, Czech Republic, um, Slovakia have opened various branches. So the British are not bound by that anymore. Um, But it certainly would go against what the desires of the professional echelons of the British foreign office are uh, and the traditional British policy. Um, Then we have to to start asking the question, what will be the next country to do so? Uh, You know, with Australia also um, backing out, it's it's hard to see any in the near future, but it is something we can expect, I think, in coming years. But there's again, there's no uh, particular candidate that is sp- especially promising right now.
0: Okay, thanks, Laser Manny. Let's go back to you to end up with a kind of cute little story. So, a U.S. based Orthodox Jewish nonprofit on Wednesday announced a new partnership with the Israeli military to provide kosher food and other supplies to soldiers who arrive in the U.S. for joint training and other activities with American forces. I was a little bit surprised about this because I didn't think that kosher sh- food is so hard to come by in the U.S. So what's what's the scoop here?
1: So this this story started earlier this year. So there was um two Navy crews in the U.S. for kind of a joint training or other kind of activity. And they were stuck without any kosher food and without any Jewish supplies that they needed uh, at the time. So, uh, somehow this, this uh, Chabad, uh, Lubavitch organization called Aleph Institute, um, they were put in contact with the chief rabbi of the Israeli Navy and they kind of managed to organize for these, uh, Navy crews, uh, kosher food for their few months that they were there. Uh, so logistically they're, they're there to kind of help with all of this. Um, so after this, this kind of incident, they they came to Israel, some of the, the, the top members of this group, and they met with um, IDF rabbinate uh, um, like officers uh, from the Navy, from the Air Force, from the Ground Forces, from Logistics Department. And they've come to this uh, kind of official agreement now that when uh, this often, you know, hundreds of Israeli soldiers are in the U.S. for all sorts of training activities, there are also several... Uh, IDF officers who are permanently stationed in the U.S. in all sorts of units there. Um, so now, basically, this this group, Aleph Institute, which normally assists uh, American Jewish soldiers uh, in the American armed forces as well as incarcerated uh, American Jews, um, so now they will be officially um, kind of there to help Israeli soldiers. Uh, so let's say a group of Israeli soldiers is in the U.S. and they need... I don't know, Sukkot supplies. They need a uh, Lulav and Etrog and al Uh So this group will be there to help with the logistics and help supply it to these to these soldiers who could be stationed in all sorts of weird remote places while they're during kind of training with, with American forces. So that's really what uh, this whole thing is about. And it's uh, been difficult for Israel because when they send troops over, they can't exactly deal with the logistics side of things in the US because it's already in the US's hands. And the American army, I mean, it may have their own methods of dealing with this, but clearly there's this uh, a, a kind of the third party group here helping out with the American army as well. So now they can also help Israeli soldiers while they're there. So the first such case of them officially helping was actually during Sukkot in, in October, where they helped provide the kind of sukkah for, for, for a group of Israeli soldiers who were in the U.S., uh, and as well as uh, Arab for them to to use during the holiday, and of course food, uh, kosher food, because a lot of a lot of Israeli soldiers, even some who are not Orthodox, just traditional soldiers, uh, do keep kosher, and that's something that's very important to them. Uh, so that's really uh, what this whole new agreement is.
0: I think the real question is, how's is the cholent?
3: <laughs>
1: Hopefully, good.
0: <laughs> okay. Thanks for bringing that, Laser Manny, Thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this this out-of-this-world music.
2: You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts.
0: And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us
2: on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom.